Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 163. In this episode, we're talking about squibs, disabilities, and Harry Potter with Emma Brandel and Dr. Julie Bidley. Emma Brandel is an undergraduate student at Chapman University in Orange, California, majoring in ancient cultures and languages. And Dr. Julie Bidmead is Associate Professor of Religious Studies and the Director of the Center for Undergraduate Excellence at Chapman University in Orange, California. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Reverend Dr. Chris Porter, myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn, and introducing for the very first time, Stanley Ng, who has been a part of our Two Cities team, actually going back to 2016 when we were still just a blog. And we are so happy to have Stan join us for the podcast now. He's actually been a part of our podcast team in terms of the organization for quite some time now, but this is his first episode. And Stan, we're so glad to have you as part of the team. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I do remember our times and it was really fun. In fact, I think when we were having this conversation about starting a podcast, I think somehow like the, I just lobbed it in the chat some somewhere and all of a sudden life just became really busy for me. Um, I had to drop out for a little bit. Um, I was, uh, I served as a department chair for uh, for the institution I was at. And um, there was just a lot going on, as you can imagine there. So, um, but now I've transitioned over into high school, uh, which has been just as fulfilling. And it's just been amazing to be able to um, just have these conversations uh, with students, you know, at an earlier age now. So I do miss higher education. Uh, I do miss the the research and the pursuit of knowledge um, in a deeper way. Way where that was, you know, maybe part of your workload. <laughs> um, but here, um, you know, being in high school, being somewhere that it's more teaching focused, um, it's been just a great opportunity to um, really just see actually how the next generation um, is what they're actually being exposed to, what they're learning, and how that really informs actually what we're doing here on this podcast, mm-hmm. uh, just talking about uh, culture, theology, discipleship. Um, so it really fits nicely. The nice thing is uh, I get to uh, do this on the side now. I, I'm able to find time to do this on the side. And it's been great just to um, continue to be able to now finally be part of the podcast team. So thank you so much for you know the warm welcomes back. And I look forward to being part of more episodes to come. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's amazing too, because of course, as you just mentioned, you know, when we first got the, the ball rolling on starting a podcast it was really your your idea and your energy so it's it's great to have you part of these episodes now moving forward so we just had a wonderful conversation with Dr. Julie Bidmead and Emma Brandel who came on this episode to talk about Harry Potter and we're still in our series on disability but what we're doing in particular with this episode is we're thinking about the representation of disability in popular culture and in this case we're dealing with the representation of squibs which kind of provide an analogy actually for disabilities. Um, And so that's something that we're going to discuss in this episode. And both Dr. Bidmead and and Emma uh, had a lot of wonderful things to say. They're doing some really interesting work, working on a reading guide, which you'll hear about in this episode. And it it was just a blast to chat about Harry Potter. Stan and Chris, what were some of the takeaways that you had from our conversation with Dr. Bidmead and Emma Brandel? It was just great to hear how they're using 
a medium like Harry Potter, something that's just so well known in the culture um, for many generations, I would say, um, and how they're using that and looking at it with fresh eyes. And how does that actually impact um, our society today? We may have read it before as as young readers, and we've had a certain perspective. And you can probably say that maybe the movies and some of these other you know extra uh, texts and multimedia things um, uh, would maybe either help support or maybe even convolute even just how, how the stories are written. Um, but more importantly, is just seeing how the um, how we have this text now and we are living in the society that is now years later. And how does this, how does a now a new reading, a freshman, a more modern reading of this text, um, how does that actually inform us when it comes to um, not just what the text says, not just what the words on the paper say, but more importantly, the kind of impact it has um, just on us individuals and how society is actually uh, moving forward and how society is actually being transformed um to into this upcoming uh generation yeah i really enjoyed hearing from uh, julie and emma about how they are really seeking to enrich the reading experience for uh, harry potter and, and especially thinking then about uh that nature of marginalization and and dualism in the harry potter world between uh the muggle world and the magical world and, and uh, the ways that the, that in squibs and, and and like many others uh, don't fit neatly into either category and so are marginalised out of out of the society, in the same way that disabled people are in our society. And with that, here's our conversation with Emma Brandle and Dr. Julie Bidney. Well, Emma and Professor Bidmead, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, we're glad to be here. So I'm really, really excited for this conversation on educational accommodation and specifically thinking about educational accommodation in the light of the representation of squibs in the Harry Potter series. And I'm really excited for this because I got to hear both of you give a presentation in October at the Chestnut Hill College Harry Potter Conference. And the two of you gave this wonderful presentation. I want to hear a little bit about it now, about this presentation that you both gave uh, related to a class that that you, Professor Bidme, taught and this wonderful assignment about this reading guide that uh, Emma and, and, and a few of your classmates that you produced. So let's begin hearing a little bit about this class that you set up, Professor Bidmead, and this wonderful reading guide that you put together with your classmates, Emma. Okay, I'll start by talking a little bit about the class. It's a class on religion, race, gender, and basically any sort of identity in Harry Potter. And it's a class I've been teaching as a travel course for 10 years now. However, with COVID, um, for two years, we weren't able to teach the class. So Emma um, and some of her classmates were very lucky because I decided once we couldn't travel, I would teach the class um, in person. And let me just preface this by saying it's a January class so that it is only meets for four weeks during January. Normally we travel to London and we have classes at our university. But when Emma took the class, when she did this assignment, we put it together as a brand new class for four weeks where basically we did nothing but 
talk about Harry Potter um, for four or five hours a day, looking at issues of race, of gender, um, transphobia, homophobia, disability, uh, ableism, ageism, everything that you can think of. And the class, as I said, normally it's a travel course where we go to London, so the assignments are quite a bit different. But in Emma's course, one of the things that um, we came up with to, because we had been talking for so often in the class with these students who pretty much grew up with Harry Potter, love Harry Potter, but the big elephant in the room is JK Rowling and her stance on um, trans, trans women or trans people in general. And the question kept coming up, how can we still love this material, but have a problem with the author? And the students said amongst themselves, wouldn't it be great if there was some sort of reading guide for new parents to use with their children when they introduce them to Harry Potter, but also point out all the problems that are there. So with that idea in mind, I told the class if they would like to have an alternative assignment, not the final assignment that I had originally intended, that they could work on a group project in their house. Let me just step back. Each of the students are divided into houses, just like the Harry Potter house. And of course, Emma's in the Ravenclaw house, which tends to have most of the, all of us, um, the people that are really um, academic nerds, if you will. Um, anyway, in the Ravenclaw house, Emma and her classmates decided they wanted to take on this project. And this project was design a reading guide for, um, young parents, young children to use when they're first introducing the Harry Potter books and for them to work on it as a group project. I gave them very little guidance um, other than to use the articles that we've looked at in the class and to say about 20 pages. Okay, I will let Emma Ravenclaw prefect here to take it from there to tell you how this turned into the reading guide that you heard at the conference. Yeah, so um, there are about six or seven of us Ravenclaws that got together. Um, and I remember we just started a big document because we decided at the very end of class, right before we were about to go home for the day, I think it was a Wednesday or Thursday and class ends on Thursday. Um, yeah, let's like get together, let's share a document. And we just started putting down all the books. And I think we had asked before we left, can we do the movies too? because there are certain things that we noticed that were um, changes to the script or um, changes in how things are represented or portrayed. Um, and so we were on the document and the document with bullet points was getting longer and longer and longer because there were seven of us who I think individually probably could have done a 20 page um, <laughs> assignment. And so we expanded it further. We did Cursed Child. We talked a little bit about that. Um, we did the Fantastic Beast movies, and then we did the Pottermore website and also um, J.K. Rowling's Twitter. Um, and so it ended up being, um, I think, 97 pages. <laughs> um, and so each section, um, we split up the books. Um, originally, each of us was going to do one book, but that was just not enough for us. So we expanded to do some movies. So I think we had two people doing the movies, split them four and four. Um, I think three of us did the books. So I did the first three books. Someone did four and five and another person did six and seven. And then somebody did Pottermore and somebody did the Fantastic Beats movies. And then another person did Cursed Child. I think that's seven. If my math is right, might be somebody might have doubled up somewhere. Um, 
And we decided for each section, we would start with four core subsections for each book, for each movie, et cetera. And then if there's something that's unique to that, we would split off from there. So for example, all of the books, we would have a section on religion um, because I was big. We spent a whole week on religion. We would do race slash colonialism slash racism slash anti-Semitism, uh, but race as a big category. And then we would do um, gender slash sexuality um, and then feminism and women's studies. And then, you know, for example, Chamber of Secrets, I did a special section just on disability because that's where we first are introduced to the I idea of squibs. Um, and I think there were a couple others. There was consent um, with Polyjuice Potion later on in book five or six, um, I think book six. Um, and so, um, yeah, so we started with that and um, we just expanded from there uh, and it just kind of came together. We were doing a lot of it asynchronously and we just kept having more discussions in class. And it was crazy because I remember so many times I would have thought I finished my section on book one and I was moving on to book two. And then we would, somebody would say something so great in class. And I just took a little note of it and I had to go home and add it to my section. So it was really fun. I mean, it just wrote itself, I think. Um, so that was one of my favorite experiences in any class ever, honestly. Um, and I remember uh, going into the, the project, I remember thinking like, this is probably the most applicable project I've ever worked on um, to my own life, because I was one of the ones in class that had mentioned, like, I want to read these books to my kids someday, 20 years in the future, but I don't know how different the world would be in 20 years. I really don't know how to even broach the topic. So for me, I also wanted to not just point out the problems, but also point out some of the good things that you might not get a cultural context for um, being a, a kid in the year 2040. <laughs> um, you know, some of the uh, concepts that are, that are neutral or good as well. Um, you know, like, uh, what was the idea of a strong female character in the 2000s growing up? What was what was the kind of female archetype character that I looked up to in my childhood that might not be as relevant to my children someday? So that was something I also wanted to bring into it. Yeah, thank you so much for that rundown on this wonderful reading guide that you produced, uh, Emma, uh, for Professor Bidmead. Uh, do you have any plans to publish this uh, at any point? Has it been published already? Uh, can our listeners access it? anywhere? No, it hasn't been published yet. And we have, we do have plans to publish it. The first time we ever presented it was at the Harry Potter conference in October. And we, we got such great feedback from many of the scholars there that they really said we need to publish this. So I've started to look at it, not now as a class assignment, but as something that we can publish. Um, right now, there's a number of things that have to be changed for publication. But Emma and I have kind of talked about this informally and we um, would like to publish it only using the material for the first book, for the books. Um, the, the movies, Cursed Child, all that other stuff can be worked on later, but we think the books are the most important. The second thing is, um, and um, you're a professor, so you know how this is, what you're looking at from a student paper that might be an A plus paper um, is probably not going to make it in the publishing world. So we'll have to go back and edit it. And then another part of it is um, some of it is written by students and I don't have their permission yet to give their, to put this out there because of FERPA requirements. So Emma and I have decided that in our spare time, haha, ha, we are going to sit down 
and rework, um, especially Emma wrote the, like the first three chapters, which are the first three books um, and the introduction and that the two of us are gonna work on it together taking the ideas that some of the students use, and of course I'm going to credit them and give them credit, but we are actually gonna rework it and write it. Now, where it's going to be published, I don't know. Um, some of the people at the Harry Potter conference are helping us to find the correct venues. So as soon as I can make it available to you, I'll go ahead and let you do that. But definitely, um, we have. I had told the students in class, if they do this reading guide, and if I think it's um, appropriate, I will find a place for them to present it and publish it. And we did find a place to present it and publish it at the, at least at the Harry Potter conference. So maybe hopefully by next year, it'll be in good enough form um, and to get it out there. And of course, there's all, a lot of venues. Um, we could publish it online. We could self-publish it. Um, I, we just haven't gotten there yet. So anyway, there'll be something. Yeah. So, um, you know, thank you for coming on to this podcast. It's just amazing to hear about just the work you've been doing. I, I remember reading even a form, uh, like an older article from Chapman University. I used to kind of reside in that area on how, what you guys did with Disney and everything. And especially you're seeing now with some of the changes that are happening in the park as well, just within the last couple of days, right? Um, yeah, and just seeing the work that you're doing, it's just it's just great to uh, to be an advocate for um, for those who uh, who are marginalized, those who are unseen. Um, I, so, you know, just tell me a little bit more. Now, I'm not a Harry Potter fanatic here. I may be a Disney fan, but that's not the focus of our podcast here today. Um, but tell us a little bit more about um, the you know Squib, or tell me. You know, I'm someone who doesn't know this. Maybe some of our listeners may not may not be familiar with. It. Tell us a little bit about Squib, a little bit of context here, and um, and why are you focusing on Squib specifically, um, especially in the work that you're doing? I'll jump in real quick here, and um, I was the one that did the Disney stuff at Chapman because prior to the Harry Potter class, I was teaching a class in Disney, and some of the students that were in that Disney class said, "Let's do this with Harry Potter." And so suddenly it, mor it morphed into Harry Potter. So I was using some of the same ideas, um, which just goes to show that popular culture is so important in today's world. Um, one of the things that through the Disney class and through this class, students learn to really look at these issues and look at them and kind of step back and see them in a fictional world. It makes it so much easier for them to see them in the real world. And this is gonna segue into Emma talking about what squibs are because suddenly they noticed um, squibs in the Harry Potter world are just like disabilities in our world. And I also just wanted to kind of add on to that, that um, I think it's also not just pop culture is so helpful in academia and, and learning to think about our, our world, but specifically pop culture media that we took in very early in our lives, which at the generation that my classmates and I were at, we were all, I mean, the Harry Potter books, the first one was published five years before I was born. Um, so we're definitely living in a post Harry Potter world, all of us. Um, and that really, I mean, the first time I read Harry Potter, I was in first grade. So these ideas have been with me for so long. And they were always this, you know, far off fantasy world that didn't have anything to do with our world until you go back and look at it with a certain eye. Um, and so the concept of squibs is something that, you know, I read about when I was eight. And I've known about them and I didn't consider them until I read it again in high school. Um, so in the second book, um, we learn two different terms um, that are kind of opposites from each other and are also 
kind of different metaphors. Um, so you have muggleborns um, with the derogatory term mudblood. Um, that is a person who is born to two muggle parents or non-magical parents and is a witch or wizard. Um, and so they have magic. And then on the other hand, you have squibs, which are um, born to wizarding parents, normally a pure blood family. I think it is referenced. So somebody all the way down their family lineage is wizarding, and then they do not have magical abilities themselves. Um, so that it's kind of interesting because um, the Muggleborns throughout the series are constantly this um, racialized um, uh, a group uh, considered uh, in this allegory for the Holocaust um, as the Jewish people, um, whereas squibs are very much indicative of um, and representative of uh, disabled people. Um, both, I think they fit into certain um, physically disabled and um, mentally disabled um, archetypes. Thanks so much for that, Emma and and Julie. Um, the the place of squibs in um, in the Harry Potter um, universe is is a quite a, a, a difficult one a lot of the time. Um, we see in um, at Hogwarts they're they're marginalised and yet like Filch and um, he plays such an intrinsic role. He's, a, he's such a, a rich character within uh, the books and and in in the Potterverse. Um, it strikes me that sometimes they are yes they are that disabled character but they're also an integral part of the social structure for wizarding the wizarding community uh, and it actually reminds me um uh, and julie i know you, you've done some work in the mesopotamian and akkadian um the function of eunuchs in the court uh, they are intentionally disabled in that case but they are they're utilizing a dis disabled person uh, in that in that case, intentionally disabling them to provide a, a category of people to be able to use in that way. Interested then, how does this function within the, the Harry Potter universe? Um, in, in the Potterverse, us, where squibs are in that liminal space, do we have those analogs for, um, for the roles that they provide in other ways like that? Good question. And um, I totally agree with you that that squibs are in that liminal place. I mean, they are on the border, are the margins. They're not muggles, but they function kind of as muggles. Um, they're not wizards, but they're born of wizarding families. So they don't fit in anywhere. And your analogy with um, eunuchs in the court, in the ancient world especially, really makes sense in this context. But I think there's one key difference, I think, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, eunuchs choose to go into this role. Um, maybe some of them are forced into it with slavery. I'm not 100% sure, but it's more of a choice where um, a squib doesn't have that choice. They cannot do the magic. So it is a little different, but you are correct in the sense that if you look at Filch, and then also another squib in the book is uh, Mrs. Fig, Harry's next door neighbor, who is, you know, um, helps helps the story along. Both of these character squibs help the story along. But what I think what we're looking at particularly is how the author of the book describes the script squibs in the narrative. Um, they're set up to be, you know, sort of, I don't know what, what a better word for us, but, you know, um, Mrs. Fig next door is like described as like a crazy cat lady whose house smells like cabbage. Not seems to be a character you're going to want to embrace. And then Filch, um, Emma can pick up a little bit more on this, is very disagreeable. Um, so 
the way that the author puts the narrative in makes us want to look at squibs as the other, as something that is not quite um, as agreeable. And we think about that, you know, in the, our class as a form of disability or a form of ableism. Um, if you are a full-blooded um, wizard, you can conform, perform spells. If you're a squib, you're disabled. Um, you're not able to do that. Yeah, and I, I think that you bring up a really good point. Um, so looking at the two, really the only two um, characters we meet who are squibs in the entire series, um, we see that they are shown as being not enough, not just in their abilities, but also in their personalities. Um, I think that Filch is not good enough um, to be a wizard because he's cranky and mean to the students. He doesn't deserve it. I think that there's almost like a sense of like, um, you know, Ron says, well, that explains why he's so mean. I mean, he doesn't even so there's this concept of maybe he doesn't even deserve to have magic um, if he has such a bad attitude. Um, and then also, I think that there's the concept of um, the only time that Mrs. Fig is seen as being maybe helpful to wizards or good enough is when she can do something wizards can do. Um, she goes to the ministry in the fifth book to stand up for Harry um, when th he is on trial um, for using magic underage. And she says, no, he had to as a defense against a dark creature. And she explains that she can see them even though she can't do magic. And in that way, she is able to help him um, be acquitted. But if she couldn't, if she couldn't see the Dementors, she would have been no use. Um, so I think that that's a really important moment where um, the only time that she is worthy is when she can do something a wizard could do. Yeah, these two characters are the only ones that we see uh, because squibs aren't really allowed at Hogwarts. They don't have a place at Hogwarts. There's no educational inclusivity or educational accommodation for squibs. Uh, and I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about that and maybe... Uh, to, to do so, talk a little bit about what is the purpose of education at Hogwarts? What What is an education at Hogwarts for? What kind of formation is meant to take place there? Looking at it from this perspective, an education at Hogwarts is for um, able-bodied wizard. Thinking just in general, um, looking at it from sort of a modern perspective, if anybody had any... Um, uh, ability issues, they wouldn't be able to survive at Hogwarts. What is there like 142 moving staircases or, I mean, we don't have any um, ramps, you know, somebody that's um, differently abled wouldn't even be able to survive. So it really just sort of implies you have to be able-bodied. Um, you have to be then take it a next, next step further. You have to be a good wizard because you are being trained in your skills of spells and and um, wizard knowledge. So squibs don't even have that opportunity. I think it says, and I'm not sure which book it says, but it talks about it's kinder to have the squibs not go to um, a wizarding school, send them to a muggle school because then they won't be treated as second-class citizens. Um, so that's, we, we see that in the book. So it's squibs are really not, uh, Hogwarts is not for squibs or any of the magical schools. Yeah, I actually, I read a really great um, article um, in preparation for this. I don't know if we, I can't remember if we read this one in class, but it's by Megan Rhodes, Harry Potter and the Stigma of Disability, Squibs as Outsiders of the, to the Magical Universe. And I believe uh, Ron's Aunt Muriel says that quote. 
Um, of course, she's gossiping about squibs and who might be one. Um, but something that is really interesting is I remember when we discussed squibs in class for the first time, uh, somebody brought up the really good point that how many classes... So to go back, squibs, the reason that they can't do magic is because they can't do wand work. So they can't hold a magic wand and say spells and have something happen. But that's not the only magic or things taught at Hogwarts. Hogwarts is very much... Um, more of a trade school than anything because it's teaching you practical knowledge in potions, in how to care for magical plants, magical animals, um, a history of magic. All of these things don't require a wand. Um, and actually in this article, they bring up that there are really 12 classes all like always mentioned um, in the Harry Potter in the Hogwarts curriculum. And only three of them require constant use of a wand. There are nine classes. And yes, two of those, uh, three of those classes are core classes, but um, it seems ridiculous that squibs could not, at least, they can partake in three quarters of a magical curriculum um, without the use of a wand. And for that matter, they could even study wand work without being able to do it. So it seems incredibly careless to leave them out of the conversation when they can do 75% of the coursework. And there's a lot of jobs in the wizarding world that they could be assigned to do that they don't need to use magic or wand work for. So if they did go to Hogwarts and they took these, what, nine classes um, and learned about the history of magic, I mean, they could do that. And then another thing that we discussed in the class, and this is not really, not in the Harry Potter books, but it's in the Pottermore stuff, is all the other wizarding um, schools around the world. And I think the um, American and maybe the African wizarding school, they don't need to use wands. Okay, so squibs, could they, they could work there. So this whole idea that um, it's de dependent on wand magic kind of falls apart. Yeah, and another thing this article brings up, which is just, it's a really great, it's so dense. It kind of takes everything we talked about for three hours and puts it in a beautiful five pages. Um, <laughs> But uh, they also bring up um, a, a character who is kind of aligned with squibs, and that's Hagrid, the, the groundskeeper. And Hagrid has magic. He went to school originally as a wizard. He is half giant, but he was a wizard, um, and he got expelled, and his wand was broken. He works at the school and has worked at the school for decades without the use of a wand. He's not allowed to legally use a wand. Um, and he is a teacher at the school. He teaches care of magical creatures. So if a teacher at Hogwarts cannot use magic um, with the use of a wand. Um, it seems pretty ridiculous, frankly, that a student who cannot use a wand because of their ability rather than the legality of it, it seems crazy that they're not allowed to. You mentioned that in what you guys are doing, there's uh, there's so much work that you guys are doing, not just in terms of writing these papers, but even developing you know, some sort of reading guide or prompts. Um, and it sounds like just from how you've explained it, there's um, it's not just, it, it's pretty wide in terms of the audience. Um, so actually one thing that I'm curious to know is, first off, is there, are there any like, are there any prompts that you're able to just share with us just right here uh, for our listeners um, and maybe a collection, maybe a collection from different groups. So I know that you mentioned, hey, there's maybe some for parents, but, um, but maybe some for a different audience as well, uh, so that we can kind of see um, just how, uh, how it's being communicated and how it's being received um, just in our audience um, and just in the broad audience that you've uh, addressed these for. 
Yeah, so um, the way that I structured my part of the reading guide, I um, would have the subsections. I would give all the background information. Um, we put in the introduction also that um, these should be read after every book has been read. So they come with the questions after just reading the book and come and analyze it. Um, so uh, I give some background on squibs, but of course they've already just read about them. And then I give a little bit of an analysis of how um, that is a metaphor um, for our, our world. Um, and then at the very end, I, I put some questions and these, I tried to gear them towards um, upper elementary um, as best as I could. Um, I work with kids over the summer, so I, I kind of have an idea of um, the kinds of questions that is up to their, up to task for them. And um, yeah, so I, I could read some of the questions that I put at the end of that section from the Chamber of Secrets. I said um, the big question after I had given the whole three paragraphs. So the big question that comes from this analysis is, if the modern world has moved forward in its treatment and accommodation of disabled individuals, why has the wizarding world not also moved forward? Should the wizarding world embrace squibs and offer them a place in their society? Should squibs be allowed at Hogwarts? If the real world can acknowledge and accommodate the needs of disabled individuals, why could the wizarding world not? And so I had given a little bit of an explanation of how um, disabled individuals have been treated and the fight for their rights across the 20th century. Um, I talked about um, uh, being sent away uh, to homes in the 20th century and how it was a very dark time. It was hidden. It was under um, a lot of scrutiny, especially um, public figures and how they would hide away um, their disabled family members and loved ones. And so that was those were the questions I was trying to get these uh, the kids to engage with after giving them a short history. So one of the, the things it, then in the wizarding world here is that the the squibs are often so denigrated. They're not even just hidden away as as has been the, often the tradition in in the Western world, um, but they are they are so denigrated, and yet they often seem to function fairly well in Muggle society. Uh, so we know that the Weasleys have a accountant in the family, um, and there's a um, a mention somewhere uh, when I was at one of the Harry Potter places of a muggle, uh, a squib who became a rugby player. Um, and so there's a there's a little book that you can buy of uh, his autobiography as a squib. Why do you think then, um, given given that we have in, in our in our modern context and also the history of, of disability in in our world, I guess you'd say, but, uh, is becomes so has this rich history of, of trying to integrate people with disability um and even within the times when they they would send them to uh, a home or a, a, a institution those institutions would would often seek to to provide some form of education or some form of integration for them in why do you think that um in the, in the potterverse we see this highly dualistic society um, where there is this um, constant uh, denig denigration and then separation of anyone who uh, doesn't f conform to the normate, the, the, the normative uh, features of uh, the wizarding world? Uh, that's a very difficult question to answer. I don't know why um, we would see this in the narratives. Um, I think that squibs, even though they've gone on to be rugby players or accountants or help out, 
they should have equal access to the same education that every other wizard um, born child should have. So, you know, when there's times we've thought about the squibs not being allowed in um, Hogwarts. Now, we don't know if they've ever been, if ever they tried to get in, but they don't get their acceptance um, uh, letters. And so they're not invited to join, but it's very similar to uh, racial segregation in our schools, um, you know, um, not not that many years ago. Um, it's the same thing. So they should be invited to participate in the same sort of education. Why it's not there is a really a good question. And I don't have any great answer for that. Maybe Emma has some better idea. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that this is the question we kept coming back to um, constantly for every issue. Why is it like this in the narrative? And I think if you want to just simple it, simplify it down, it's just that she was writing a book series and she wanted to incorporate elements of culture, but she had a story to tell. I think that's a little reductive um, with a lot of these conversations. Um, I think something we also really discovered, and I've constantly been re-examining the series as I read them in elementary, middle, high school, and college, but something I didn't realize until this class was that um, I always thought of... Um, the, the wizarding world as this really eccentric and vibrant culture um, and they're different and they're not afraid to be different, but that's just compared to muggles. And in fact, wizarding society is incredibly normative. It's incredibly, um, you know, culturally conservative, trying to retain what it once was. Um, and I think that that is the reason you see a lot of things in the series and why they always, they do seem archaic. Um, and kind of backwards, um, the way that they are still fighting for muggle-born rights um, in the 90s, when you see that in the wizarding world, there's a lot of parallels, and they were fighting a war during World War II at the same time. They were, um, you know, having a lot of the same parallel issues going on just in the wizarding world, and so there's kind of this question of um, why it took so long to have this battle for muggle-born rights and how nothing really changed after the muggle-borns um, got some more freedom after Voldemort was defeated. I mean, you have all of the other um, uh, intelligent, non-human uh, species still can't have wands, still can't be seen as equals in society. Um, you still see house elf oppression. Um, and so I think that the problem is um, we think of the series and, and the world in the series as being really, um, really subversive and um, different. And the culture is really, I think is a very conservative culture um, that leads it to being kind of behind in the times from when it was set in the modern world. Yeah, one of the things that you said there is that it might be a bit reductive to kind of pin it on um, Rowling's kind of need to create a good story or whatever. Well, I wonder if maybe um, to say it more cynically, is there some unconscious ableism sort of at work within her writing? And I, I wonder if we could think about that, you know, because one of the things that stands out. Uh, about Harry Potter is actually the way that it is pretty conscious about prejudice, or at least it addresses prejudice like quite explicitly. I mean, even with the mudblood example, um, as, as you mentioned earlier, Emma, um, there was a, a, a keynote pre presenter 
uh, at Chestnut Hill College a handful of years ago, uh, Loris Vizzali, an Italian scholar who did this great um, social scientific research about the ways in which um, children who were exposed to Harry Potter, who were reading Harry Potter, and specifically reading as opposed to watching, uh, who were reading Harry Potter, grew in empathy. That And it was like detectable uh relative to you know children who weren't reading harry potter within this uh study growing in empathy and and it just it just it just is striking that um given the nature of this analogy uh which seems so obvious as we're discussing it right uh and yet it, it 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 seems like a major miss at the same time because the text wants the reader to grow in empathy or at least it seems that way by the explicit subject matter of prejudice and it actually does have that effect based upon the scientific research so i'm just curious you know like i, I just threw out there this possibility of this kind of unconscious ableism relative to this you know fact that the text would seem to want us to you know move in a different direction i'm just curious about your thoughts about that uh, yeah, so I think that that's a really good point. I think that you'll find, and we definitely found, that uh, J.K. Rowling had a lot of um, unchallenged biases when writing the series. And there's this constant push and pull between feeling empathy for characters um, and also anybody who is bad is fat, lazy, greedy, and mean. And you are supposed to make fun of them for that. Um, or they are if they're disabled, they're mean and they're mean because they're disabled and there's unchallenged uh, colonialism written into this magical series that is never seen as a bad thing. It's seen as some glorious, um, you know, Bill Weasley's job to go into Egypt and Egyptian tombs and and break magical uh, uh, spells. And that's seen as a great, wonderful, exciting job. I think there's a lot of things that are really indicative of the um the culture that she was writing in in um you know middle class we say middle class lightly she claims I, I don't want to get into that she said she was poor and you know she was upper middle class for most of her life and then she was poor and when she wrote the books and you know it's a whole thing um but <laughs> uh you know she's writing this in a white uh neoliberal 90s Britain um, and that is going to reflect in the series. So most of us are, we've been involved in some form of education and teaching, and I'm kind of want to uh, just throw in just some application question. And, um, you know, one thing I've been, I've really enjoyed just hearing from, from this conversation is how you're using just something that's common in culture that people just remember very nicely. You know, you couldn't say that for some other things, right? Uh, but for some reason, there's some, there's something, there's something powerful about story and how that can, you know, not only for you guys, not for only for you to be able to analyze and to be able to provide commentary for it, but also how that can actually make a possibly a greater impact. I and mean, that's why we you know, us as scholars or so we would pursue publishing so that our work is out there. So in terms of, um, you know, not thinking super broad or anything, but maybe just in the immediate, let's say, uh, next couple, few, couple years, few years or so, um, how do you see the work that you're doing in this and with this plan to maybe do some pub some publishing? How do you see this making some sort of impact in um, some of the in some of the areas that you are in? So uh, whether it's in education or in the workplace, uh, for example, I my background is in engineering and 
one of the major things that we're trying to implement more and more, especially when it comes to things like civil engineering, is actually implementing more virtual reality so that those who um, who are physically disabled can actually be in a build site. It may not be live, but at least you know that's a hazard for anyone uh, who had who needs any sort of um, movement accommodations. Um, but by at least implementing that, that's so so. How, what kind of impact do you see see this uh, making in society, whether it's in education, K-12, um, or in the workplace, um, even outside of education as well? That's a great question. And I can see the reading guide as a whole, um, not particularly just on um, disability, but making a difference because it gives parents or teachers or whoever, kind of a tool when they're working with a child, let's just say a disabled child, and they say, I'm reading these books. I don't see me in there. I don't see anybody that's like me or, you know, the Harry Potter world is pretty, pretty white. Um, if you're a person of color, if you are, um, you know, non-heterosexual, you're not there in the narrative. So this reading guide can at least help to explain, well, this is the cultural historical context in which the books were written in the 90s. Um, there are questions that you can ask the narrative um, about why they aren't there and what you can do with it. And I think that with those kind of questions, they can apply it to other works of literature that might have this problem. And um, I'm going to tie back on to um, the article that you said about reducing prejudice in Harry Potter, because I have my students read that. It's an excellent article. It's scientifically done, but, and I think it's great. And I think it works and I think it's true, but I wonder if they were to do a similar study now on children who are growing up in 2023, I think the study was done in 2010, maybe, I don't know. There is just, um, you know, a different sort of wokeness with um, young people today. And I wonder if they would feel the same way. Because when you think about even when Harry Potter first came out, um, the idea of Hermione being this great feminist character, you know, women now, young girls always would relate to Hermione. I can raise my hand in class. I can be a scholar. I can be that. But we've gone way past that now. Um, now we can look at Hermione and kind of turn back and say, hey, she's a bit of a flawed character. Um, there's some problems there. So I think that perhaps it can kind of just maybe give some sort of a, a context to help guide the questions in the reading. Thanks so much, Julie. Um, just wanting to circle back uh, to a point we were talking about a bit earlier about the place of squibs in the Potterverse and also then how uh, the minimal ways that Rowling actually seeks to, to allow them to, to be integrated in. Um, the 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 one that always comes to mind is um, Argus Filch, uh, who um, effectively uses Miss Norris or Mrs Norris as a, a disability aid. So Filch, as a squib, can't use um, magic, but Mrs Norris seems to have some form of magical ability. Shows up on the Marauders map, is able to track the the students through the winding corridors seems to have some form of sixth sense as to where they are and also be able to communicate back to uh, Filch um, so that they can nab them um, when they're out after dark. Um, whether or not we, we think that um, she's a maledictus or not, um, she does seem to function in some way as a, a disability aid. Um, 
In the reading guide, how do you draw that those sorts of things out for people? Uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, people of colour don't necessarily see themselves in, in the Potterverse, et cetera, et cetera. How, do, um, how, how does the reading guide really draw those things out for us? That's a good point with Mrs. Norris. Um, basically, Mrs. Norris is a better witch wizard than um, Filch is and is functioning in that same sort of way and is exactly what you said, sort of a disability aid like how we would have seeing eye dogs or um, therapy pets or whatever to help. But again, when you look at it from that way, um, Filch can't do it on his own. He needs to have that, that extra um, bit to look at it. So I think it can be taken both ways as a positive and a little bit maybe as a negative, but it makes Filch function then as a whole character, being able to do everything that they couldn't do on their own. and so. That's actually, you know, a good thing in real life, because if you can't do everything on your own, it's not bad to rely upon, you know, somebody else to do it, you know, regardless of Mrs. Filch being good or bad or whatever, it's an aid to help it um, in. And so those are the kind of questions that we can put into the reading guide to make them think um, a little bit further on this topic. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, we've in our discussions about how to um, edit uh, the reading guide and, and make it ready for publication is uh, we want to kind of remove the questions from the uh, the paragraphs themselves. And at the end of each chapter, put a couple of different uh, question sections for different age groups um, to try to, if you're reading it for the first time when you're seven versus when you're reading it for the first time when you're 12, you're gonna have very different uh, world concepts and um, just your brains will be uh, different. Um, and so that could be definitely something that we bring up. Um, and I also wanted to point out that it's interesting because um, Mrs. Fig also uh, breeds measles, which are like magical cats that have extra abilities. Um, and so I think it's interesting that you see both of these characters as being closely tied um, to their pets that have um, kind of otherworldly abilities that they are not, uh, you know, lucky enough to have. So. Hey, just as a final thought here, uh, as you have put in all this work into everything, just love to hear both from Julie and Emma, me individually, um, what has been like a, like the biggest surprise that has come out of this? Uh, love to hear um, just maybe something from like, hey, you had some perspective in the past it, when you first read it, kind of going off of, um, you know, what Chris had mentioned about, um, you know, this podcast, maybe a, a read from the past. And then now you just look at it with fresh eyes. What has been like the biggest surprise uh, for you just working on this, um, this wonderful tool? Um, well, I think I can start. Um, I, I think that the most surprising thing, um, first of all, um, I finished the books for the first time when I was in second grade. And if you had told me in second grade that in 10 years, I would be in a class all about Harry Potter and writing about Harry Potter for a class, um, that would have just been the biggest dream to third grade me. Um, but I, I guess that when I reread them in high school, that was around the time of the transphobic reckoning online and the canceling originally of JK Rowling. Of course, she wasn't officially canceled. She still has so much impact on the world, but um, I, I kind of moved away from Harry Potter and it made me sad um, to engage with because I was seeing all of these things that I, I didn't remember from childhood. And obviously, you know, a book written 30 years ago um, is going to have things that did not age well. 
And I remember high school being a little bit disappointed um, rereading it. And when I joined the class, I read the books again before the class started um, in preparation. And then we started talking about it and just being around other people uh, my age uh, that also loved the books as kids. And we all have the same issues with them now and issues with things outside of the text from the author now. And just having that community, um, we kind of all got together and said, no, we're not going to give this up because it meant so much to us. So much of our identity growing up was put in these books. And um, I think the most surprising and amazing part of this is that I think I like the books even more than I did when I was a kid. I, I think that I get more joy from reading them now than I ever have. And that was the most surprising thing. And it's it's amazing. So that was great, Emma. Um, for me, obviously, I read the Harry Potter books as an adult. I was already a scholar, a professor teaching. So, you know, I read them and just thought, this is great. This is fun. Um, of course, I would see parallels to religion and things like that in it that interest me. And then, of course, I put it aside. But it wasn't until, um, let's say, maybe 12 years ago or so when students started really saying, you've got to teach Harry Potter, you have to teach Harry Potter. And then I went and reread the books again. And when I reread them, I'm like, wow, there's a lot there. There's so much to deal with, not just in religion, but gender and uh, race and class structure and parallels to history. Um, and so I realized, wow, you know, regardless of what we may think of what the author feels about certain things, it's brilliant literature. Um, it ties well together. Um, even though there's problems with the later canon stuff like Cursed Child or Fantastic Beasts, it still kind of all works together. There's a, a, a like a narrative thread that you can trace through it. And, you know, there's plot holes, of course, and all of that. But still, when you think about such a large body of literature that it can really all be tied together, there is something there. So just like Emma, um, every time I teach the class, I reread all the books quickly, obviously, because I've read them so many times. But every single time I learn something new, or especially in class, Students have these memorized. They know these books far better than I do. Um, and so I learn something every time I read it. So I kind of hope the magic stays with us. And I think that the reading guide and just teaching the class is one way of helping the change. You know, I don't want to cancel it. I think it's still valuable to us. Well, Professor Bidmead and Emma, thank you so much for joining us. Just really appreciate hearing from both of you as we think about um, squibs in particular, obviously, you know, Emma, you've done a broader work on, on this reading guide that, that uh, professor Bidmead is now uh, joining, joining with you on, on all kinds of topics of injustice and, and uh, marginalization. Uh, but just in particular thinking together about what just and dignifying inclusivity and accommodation for squibs at Hogwarts uh, could look like and what lessons we can learn from that about educational accommodation uh, of, of people with disabilities in the muggle world, I just think is a really valuable and helpful uh, thing for us to consider as part of this broader series that we're doing on disability and theology. So thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. This has been great. 